Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to James chapter 5. as we look at verses 1 through 6. James 5, verses 1 through 6, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Most High, as we have just sung, we do bow in our hearts before you as the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, and we bow before you especially because of the work of Jesus Christ, who is now the risen and reigning Lord of glory. May he speak now in the pages of his word. May he speak now in the preaching of his word. And please accompany the reading and preaching of this inerrant word with sanctifying power, with converting power to those who do not know Christ yet. And may there be none here who is not affected for your glory by the reading and preaching of your word. Glorify yourself now in this service of worship. We ask through Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand now for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We'll understand tonight's passage best if we hold it up side by side, as it were, with the passage that comes right before. Compare with me the end of chapter 4 with the beginning of chapter 5. We could put the question this way, how does chapter 4, 13 to 17, relate to chapter 5, 1 through 6? The way that you answer that question will help you better understand the specific God-breathed announcement that we must hear and receive from tonight's passage. Notice a few things here compared to what we saw last time, and I'm very much indebted to the work of Douglas Moo for these observations. There are ways these two passages, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, ways that these two passages are similar and ways that they are different. Think about how they are similar. One way these two passages are similar is that they begin the exact same way. Verse 13 of chapter 4, come now. Verse 1 of chapter 5, come now. So there is a similar tone in both of these passages. James is more in your face here than he usually is because there is much needed correction here. James is essentially saying, hey, come on, church, believer, you need to wake up and hear what I am telling you. So they begin the same way. Another way these two passages are similar is that they both address broadly the problem of arrogance and self-sufficiency. So in both of those passages, James rebukes us for leaving God out of the picture practically. He's clear there at the end of chapter 4, going about your day-to-day life, 
Not acknowledging God's providence and control is sin. And that connection to the wisdom literature would show that it is also foolishness. Here, at the beginning of chapter 5, he's just as clear. Self-indulgence reveals a heart of selfishness, which leads to God's eternal wrath. And also this particular theme of pride in both of these passages may also involve the proud pursuit of wealth, although that is more obvious in tonight's passage. Another way these two passages are similar is they both deal with issues of time and eternity. In both these passages, James is showing us how foolish it is to live for the here and now, for what is visible. As we saw last time, life is so short, but eternity is so long. Your life and your possessions will come to an end one day, and it is that last day when Jesus Christ returns in glory that must determine how you live all your days here in this life. Those are some ways these two passages are similar, but there are key ways that they are different, and those differences, obviously, will help us appreciate the specific message we need to hear from our passage this evening. One way these two passages are different is, we could say, the purpose for which James writes. The end of chapter 4, James gave us a solemn reminder. The beginning of chapter 5, he gives us a solemn announcement. James reminds us at the end of chapter 4, Christian, you know better. You know better, better than to live as if you were in charge rather than the Lord being in charge. There's a reminder of what the Christian should already, does already know there. But here in chapter 5, by contrast, there is an announcement, an announcement of judgment. Remember what we just read, that our passage now is full of the language of judgment, weep and howl, moth-eaten possessions, corroded riches, flesh being eaten like fire, evidence brought against you for the day of slaughter. There is no grace offered in our passage now. There's not even a call to repentance here, only a solemn announcement of God's vengeance upon the proud and self-indulgent. And we have no right to tone this announcement of God's wrath down here, which leads us to another way these two passages are different. There is a different audience. What do I mean by that? Well, James is writing to the church, as you see in chapter 1, so his audience stays the same throughout in that sense because he's always addressing the New Testament body of Christ here. But in another sense, James is addressing another audience because here at the beginning of chapter 5, he is explicitly addressing unbelievers. His audience back at the end of chapter 4 was believers, reminding them of their Christian duty, but his audience at the beginning of chapter 5 is unbelievers telling them of their coming judgment. So, knowing the audience, who is James talking to, that is key here. And more than that, I think it's best to see that James is addressing unbelievers within the church here, rather than unbelievers out in the world, although there is, there is a connection there. Think of what the Bible says about the church. We know from other places in the New Testament that the church is a mixed community in this age prior to the return of Christ. Think of the parable of the net 
for example, where, where Jesus talks about how the church in this age is like that net cast into the sea, and it gathers in both good fish and bad fish. There, the church is a mixed community prior to the return of Christ. There are true believers, and there are hypocrites within the church now. So they will inevitably intermingle those who truly trust in Christ and those who think they trust in Christ or pretend to trust in Christ. They will intermingle until the end of this age. And as Jesus makes plain in that same parable, it's only at the end of the age that the great separation takes place where the wicked within the church are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. It's similar to what, what Peter says in his first epistle, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. All that to say, not everyone in the church is of the church. Not all who profess faith in Christ possess faith in Christ. So all of this, this understanding of the nature of the church, this highlights what James is saying here. That at the beginning of chapter 5, he is addressing unbelievers within the covenant of grace. And also these themes we see in our passage now, we've seen these themes before in James. He's spoken multiple times about the rich and the poor within the body of Christ. And all throughout the letter, he said some unpopular things about the rich. It's obvious just from a quick read of our passage now that James condemns the wicked rich. And it's vital to, to understand that he condemns the wicked rich. That's an important distinction make, to make. James does not condemn the wicked rich because they are rich. Rather, he condemns the wicked rich because their love of riches, their use of riches, their treatment of believers all reveal the true state of their hearts that they are living for themselves and for this life. That distinction is so important, I'll say it again. James does not condemn the wicked rich because they are rich. He condemns the wicked rich because their love of riches, their use of riches, their treatment of believers all reveal the true state of their hearts that they are living for themselves and for this life. We've already seen these sorts of themes throughout the book of James. Think back to, to chapter 1, where he emphasized how earthly riches will all fade away. There was that emphasis back in chapter 1 to live for what lasts, union and communion with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Those are the real riches that never fade away. Not a popular thing to say to those who are who are in love with the riches of this world. And then again in chapter 2, James puts a little more pressure on, on the rich. That's where, where he tells us about the sin of favoritism, making ridiculous distinctions, making, making um, false standards for why you like this guy, but you don't like this, this other guy. Partic in particular, receiving the rich, but rejecting the poor. Remember what he said there in chapter 2, let's, if, if you say, let's give this, this guy the best seat in worship, but, but that guy looks broke, he, he can sit at my feet. That's the sin of favoritism. And it's like James was telling us back there in chapter 2, what are you doing? 
That, that attitude of favoritism has no place in the body of Christ. We are all equally guilty, corrupt, and needy of the Lord Jesus. All of us, whether rich or poor, those external distinctions mean nothing. The world might favor the rich, but that has no place in the church. And he explains why there in chapter 2. Favoritism, favoring the rich, forgets who Christ is, that he alone is to be adored. It forgets the nature of his kingdom, that we are all equally under his rule and authority. It forgets his law of love, that we are all obligated to love our neighbor regardless of external differences. Again, not a popular thing to say to those who love the riches of this world. But James puts a little more pressure on later in chapter 2. That famous faith without works is dead passage. Remember that scenario, that that church scenario that he brought up there, chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, same sort of problem, same sort of favoritism, right? You're not rich, so I don't really care about helping you, but, man, hope you find the food and clothing that you're looking for. That is not true living faith. Union with Christ means union with each other, too. So, if you are in the body of Christ, you will care for the body of Christ. James uses that controversial issue of rich versus poor back in chapter 2, to illustrate what true faith looks like. True and living faith in the true and living Christ will serve those who belong to Christ. Now, what that looks like in each specific case is a different issue. But regardless, to, to disregard, or worse, to take advantage of the poor believer is not an option in the church because we are all one in the Lord Jesus. How you treat your fellow believers reveals whether or not you are a true believer yourself. Again, not a popular thing to say to those who love the riches of this world. And so in that flow, that brings us to our passage now. Here in chapter 5, James brings everything he has said about rich and poor thus far, and he brings it to a climax. We've seen hints of these things up to this point, But James turns the heat all the way up here. I already told you about the fleeting nature of riches, chapter 1. I already showed you how damning it is to treat poor believers like garbage, chapter 2. And now, here in chapter 5, do you see what your love of riches will get you? Do you see what your mistreatment of Christ's sheep will get you? Obviously, as we read there, it will get you eternal condemnation. You know something, one of my commitments as a preacher is that the sermon should match the passage preached. The sermon should match the tone of the passage, have the same ethos of the the passage. And with such an intense passage as this one here, I'm afraid that many of us simply want to water it down and remove all the offense, but we have no right to do any such thing. On the one side, someone like a Protestant liberal, for example, might dismiss what we read here. This is a barbaric, backward, 
bloodthirsty passage. They might want to pit the harsh James against the loving Jesus, meek and mild. Well, that is not an option because James is announcing the judgment that Jesus himself will bring at his second coming. But on the other side, perhaps closer to home, we might have the temptation to tone down this passage in a different way. We, we read verses 1 to 6, we might get nervous. So we might want to hear an explanation like, hey, don't worry. James isn't saying that you can't have money. He's not saying that privilege is wrong. He's not saying we need to pool our resources and redistribute wealth. We might want to tone down what James is saying in that way. Now, don't misunderstand. I believe all those things are true. You might look at this passage, and at first glance, you may think of Marxism or socialism or communism. But out of all the isms out there, the only ism that James holds to is Calvinism. So, yes, James is not saying that it's wrong to have money, or you should get rid of your money, or you should feel bad if you come from privilege. That is true, but it's beside the point. It's beside the point because James is not condemning riches per se. He is condemning the wicked rich. He is condemning the earthly-minded. He is condemning those who mistreat Christ by mistreating Christians. So we should be clear on what James isn't saying. But just as importantly, we need to appreciate what he is saying because when you read this, it should grab you and shake you and wake you up. Here's an announcement that hypocrites in the church will be condemned. Those who love this age will receive the fullness of God's wrath in the age to come. Calvin has a helpful summary of what we read here. Calvin says that James is speaking to the ungodly for the sake of the godly. Listen to how Calvin puts it. Here we have a simple announcement of God's judgment by which he meant to terrify them without giving them any hope of pardon, for all that he he says tends only to despair. But he has a regard to the faithful, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. So again, James is speaking to the ungodly for the sake of the godly. He announces the condemnation of the wicked rich, those who abuse the riches, who mistreat poor believers, and he does this to encourage believers in the midst of their troubles. As if to say, Christian, don't be jealous of the rich who mistreat you. Compared to you, they have nothing because you are in union with Jesus Christ and belong to his kingdom. And all that they do have, they will lose when that king returns to take vengeance on his enemies. With all that in mind, that understanding, much of the passage is fairly straightforward. So I want to highlight just two things in our remaining time. I want to look at when and who. When judgment is announced and who will execute judgment. Those are the the two primary aspects of the passage that kind of tie everything else together. First, look at when in verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So right there at the end of verse 3, notice when, the time in which we live in the last days. We heard much of this this morning. There are a couple of misunderstandings about, the, about when the last days are. One misunderstanding is that the last days means recently, which in that case, James would be condemning the wicked rich for laying up treasure recently, which doesn't, doesn't make sense in the context. Another misunderstanding is that the last days means that we can do the math and do all the calculations and figure out when Jesus is going to return on a specific date, or at least in my lifetime. But we know that Jesus is clear. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows but the Father only. So those are some misunderstandings, unfortunately, of the last days. But that phrase is so significant in the New Testament. The last days means that we live in the final chapter of history. That is the chapter between Christ's first coming and his second coming, between his empty tomb and his return. The last days is that, in other words, that last stretch of time right before the consummation. So we've been living in these last days for 2,000 years. It's a very significant period of history. It's the period when Jesus Christ brought in his kingdom. Think about what he says, what Christ says in Matthew 12. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Christ has already brought his kingdom, and his casting out of demons displays his supremacy and power as the king. It's difficult to define precisely what the kingdom of God is, but I like this definition from, from Lane Tipton. That the, king, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God over all that he has made. It is that reality by which God seeks to confer himself in a bond of communion on a holy people in a holy realm through an obedient covenant head. So this kingdom, just to highlight a few things here, it means that there is a new order of things. A new order of things has broken in to this present evil, sin-cursed age. It means that there is a new world order, a new order in which God is supreme, and He displays His supremacy in the salvation of sinners. It means that God subdues us to Himself to be His willing subjects. It means that He is the supreme ruler and judge. He carries out His holy will in righteousness and judgment. And the coming of the kingdom means that salvation has been secured by the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, and that in Him that salvation is freely bestowed. That's why last days is so significant, so significant practically for the Christian life. A new day has dawned. Redemption has been accomplished. Our King has finally appeared. He has brought us to Himself. He has purchased salvation he has conquered the enemies of sin and death and the evil one. Yes, the fullness of this lies in the future when he returns. But what comes then will be the visible manifestation of what we already have invisibly. So when James makes this reference, this loaded reference to the last days, think about what he's saying. Yeah, in verse 3 again, 
You have laid up treasure, you wicked rich, have laid up treasure in the last days. So he's addressing, again, the wicked rich. Jesus Christ has come. He's accomplished salvation. He's established his kingdom where God and man have communion. We are living in the last, one of the best periods of history. And you want more stuff? That's what he's saying there. Are you crazy? The eternal riches of salvation have appeared, and you want the temporary fleeting riches of this present evil age? The only thing left on God's timeline is the return of Christ. We now in the last days have the privilege of a completed Bible, of the finished work of Christ, His Spirit poured out upon His church at Pentecost. We have nothing left to wait for on the calendar except for Christ's return. That's the privilege we have. In light of that privilege, you wicked rich, you care more about stuff? James is announcing this condemnation justly, this condemnation of the wicked rich for their earthly mindedness. They're living for this world, not the world to come. They hunger and thirst for themselves, not for seeing God's face in glory. In such a significant time, in these last days, what are you doing living for what doesn't last? That's the first thing. Secondly, look at who. Who will execute judgment there in verse 4? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." Lord willing, we'll get into more of this situation of poor believers being oppressed later on um, in a a few weeks. But notice here who will execute the judgment. In verse 4, it is the Lord of hosts. That's one of God's names. This is His royal name. It shows that He is the Almighty King. And as the Almighty King, He is surrounded by that host, that innumerable host of angels, countless, powerful, glorious creatures, all ready to execute His will at His command. This name, the Lord of hosts, it expresses His glory as King. It is the solemn, royal name of God, full of majesty and glory. As Bavink says, this name characterizes God as King in the fullness of His glory, who, surrounded by hosts of angels, governs throughout the world as the Almighty, and in His temple receives the honor and acclamation of all His creatures. Again, a very loaded reference here by James to the Lord of hosts. So why is this important? It's important for how James uses it. He uses this name of God for the comfort of believers. Again, in verse 4, the cries of the harvesters, these poor Christians who have been oppressed, who have been taken advantage of by the wicked rich, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What a comfort to believers in their suffering and their scorn. In all my suffering, being taken advantage of, in mockery, and oppression, my heavenly King is on my side. He hears my cries and will act on my behalf. That is the great encouragement James would have us take to heart, all who are in Christ, this encouraging note that there will be final 
vindication. Just as Christ Himself lived a life of suffering unto glory, all who are in Christ will live a life of suffering unto glory as well. If we are mocked and misunderstood and oppressed, we know that we are in good company. He was as well. But He, as we know from Philippians 2 especially, He will be vindicated at His return. He will be openly, publicly acknowledged to be the one, as He always was, the one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. That is exactly what He will receive from all, including the wicked rich, at His return. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is the exalted Lord. That is His reward. And amazingly, because we are in Christ, in union with Him, we get to share in His reward. That does not mean we we will be worshipped or anything like that. It means that the suffering we experience now certainly will lead us to heavenly glory. It means that we will surely enter into the place He has prepared for us, the place where God will dwell with man in glory forever. He will be vindicated, and we will be vindicated in Him. Even though we will have to bear our cross in this life, even though we will be mocked and misunderstood and live lives of great suffering, we will be vindicated. We will be raised up in glory. It will be openly and publicly acknowledged that we belong to Jesus. We were always on the winning team. We will pass final judgment because we belong to Him. And when we see Him, His mind-blowing presence will more than repay every second of suffering, every oppression at the hands of evil men we have ever experienced in this life. Jesus Christ, as He calls Himself the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, will do this. Our King will do this when He comes in the fullness of His kingdom. And so, think of how James condemns the wicked rich, but in so doing encourages the suffering Christian. The wicked rich begin in joy and enjoy much prosperity in this life, but they will end in sorrow. It is the exact opposite for the believer. All who are in Christ begin in sorrow, but will end up in eternal joy. So we are living in the last days. Are you spending those days for yourself? Or are you spending those days pressing on, longing for the blessed return of the Lord Jesus? His kingdom has come. Are you building your own false kingdom, or are you submitting to His supremacy in all things? The Lord of hosts will vindicate His people at His blessed return. Will you be the rebel that He casts into the lake of fire, or will you hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? In light of what we see here, if you do not know Christ, see from what we have read how your judgment is described for you. See what your earthly-mindedness, living for what you can see, will get you. Turn from your sin, rest upon, and receive the only one who can save you. He gave up his earthly riches to, to come to poverty, to bring you from poverty to his eternal riches. Don't let these things, these earthly riches, distract you from the blessedness of communion with God in Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says it best in his chapter on riches and poverty and practical religion. 
Does anyone have money? Then take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Remember, you carry weight in the race towards heaven. All men are naturally in danger of being lost forever, but you are doubly so because of your possessions. Nothing is said to put out fires so so soon as dirt thrown upon it. Nothing, I'm sure, has such a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. It is possible, no doubt, for you to be saved as well as others. With God, nothing is impossible. Abraham, Job, David were all rich and yet saved. But oh, take heed to yourself. Money is a good servant, but a bad master. Let that saying of our Lord sink down into your heart. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Tying all these things together, Christ has brought his kingdom. He is the the royal Lord of hosts. He will save his people and he will vindicate them and and cast all who, who are outside of him into darkness. Larger Catechism 45. Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them in bestowing grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience, correcting them for their sins, preserving, supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and for their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who do not know God and not obey the gospel. With this in mind, may God be glorified as just and as the justifier of all who trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ.